Our scripture reading today comes from Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, and then 19 through 22. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said to them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi re returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is God's word. Well, we're continuing a series on Ruth. Uh, my name is Jonathan, by the way, one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. We're still in chapter one, uh, and last week the focus was really on Ruth. We, we focused on Ruth's faith and her love and her hope and how ultimately she really models what steadfast love looks like. Ultimately, it's experiencing the steadfast love of Jesus uh, that enables us to love like Ruth. But the focus this week is going to be on Naomi. And it, it brings us to a topic that does cause uh, some eyebrows to raise, maybe some general discomfort, uh, or at least it should, uh, may, may by the end, uh, at least of... Uh, what I, I hope to share with you. Uh, her words seem very strange in a lot of ways. What's her problem? Uh, she, seems, she seems like a whiner, doesn't she? Uh, I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. He's brought misfortune upon me. Why is, why is she whining? Why is she complaining? Uh, let me ask you, do you have a go-to person in your life when you need to just vent about life? You're a person that when you need to complain about the state of your world, you go to, you know they're a good ear, they'll listen. When you're grieving a situation with one of your kids, what are the kind of characteristics you look for in that person? Obviously, you want them to be a good listener, someone who doesn't check their phone while you're talking, uh, who looks you in the eyes, uh, a person who's proven to be a good friend in the past. So let me ask you, do you ever talk to God like that? Can you imagine talking to God like that? Uh, Joe, can you show us these, uh, these words? And turn this around and, and I'll read this to you. Please, God, no more yelling. No more trips to the woodshed. Treat me nice for a change. I'm so starved for affection. Can't you see I'm black and blue, beat up badly in bones and soul? God, how long will it take for you to let up? God, are you avoiding me? Where are you when I need you? Long enough, God. You've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Now, what do you think about that 
attitude. I, I know you're not used to talking in church, so you think that's a rhetorical question, but it's really not. Uh, do you ever think of talking to God like that? There are a lot of people who have concerns with those types of words, that type of language. It seems disrespectful, doesn't it? At least it should. You're going to talk to the God of the universe like that. Um, well, let me read. That's actually a translation of these words. Right out of the psalm, Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? From Psalm 6 and then 10 and then 13. So roughly about a third of the Psalms, uh, a whole book, our call to worship is from a book called Lamentations, right? The word lament is in there. And countless prophets are full of this idea of lament. So the question is, why does it make us feel so squeamish? I mean, if you're honest, it does, or it should. And I hope we can answer that through the lens of Naomi's words uh, in this passage. So if you look at the outline that's in your worship folder, it's in the insert, you'll see three things, I'm gonna, uh, three points I'm going to attempt to make this morning. First is getting in God's face. Uh, what is a lament? Uh, why is it uncomfortable for us? Why does it feel disrespectful to complain to God? In fact, uh, the Bible says later in the New Testament, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Uh, and, and, and yet here, here uh, the psalmist is complaining in a way to God. So first, what are they? Secondly, what about Naomi's lament in particular? Her words in the first chapter point us to her faith. Is it an act of faith to lament? I want to argue that lamenting is a form of faith, and how, how, how is that? Thirdly, then, uh, whether you're lamenting yourself or you're loving someone who's in the middle of a lament, how do you love them? Uh, how does God prove himself to you, and how do you point them to his proving uh, himself to them? So those three things, uh, as we uh, look at this idea of lament and the silent lover in the midst of uh, our lament. I, I was having a conversation with a friend a couple of uh, weeks ago, and he said, you know, sometimes talking to God, period, about things seems like a waste of time. I start praying to him, and I think, you know, I, I guess I'm supposed to do this. But then the thought occurs to me right after, as I'm supposed to do this, or I'm doing it with my kids because, you know, we're supposed to do it. Well, he's going to do what he's going to do anyway, right? I mean, he's sovereign. He's in control. Uh, he's the ruler of the universe. And so, unfortunately, that ends up being a recipe for giving up on prayer altogether. If you're going to talk to him, uh, it, it should be formal. It should be full of these and thous, right? In fact, you, you, you notice this sometimes with, with people when they start praying, they, they sort of go into a different voice. Their inflection changes. Oh, God, I'm so grateful for who is that talking, right? I mean, who, who, who are you? What have you turned into? It's like they stop being themselves and they turn into this, you know, religious person. But when we hear laments, we hear an emotionally raw pouring out of the heart to God. We read them. We're amazed at them. 
If you look back at those slides, you probably read them and you really are amazed at them. But we don't pray like them. We don't talk to him when life really, really stinks like that. The Hebrew people, in fact, not only prayed like that, but they sang songs like that. And in general, songs in church today don't, don't sound like this, right? They tend to be happy. They tend to be uh, major keys, not minor keys for those of you musicians, although we've sung a couple today just because we're on this theme. See, we in the West, uh, we in the West are more conditioned by the worldview of the Greeks than we are the worldview of the Jews, okay? So a little history lesson. Bear with me. This is important to not only get inside the Bible and why some of, uh, some of the Psalms are written the way they are, but to get inside of our own, kind of the way we operate in reality. Uh, as Christianity became less and less Jewish, it soaked up more and more of this cultural air of the Greco-Roman way of seeing the world. For every worldview other than the Jewish one, brokenness and evil are normal. And so what you do is you just accept them, right? And you learn to cope with them. The Greeks as a result, saw the passions, they saw the emotions as untrustworthy. They valued thought, they valued reason, they valued, valued clear-headed, orderly, rational discussions. You don't get too worked up. You don't want your passions to control you. It's a danger to be controlled by your emotions or your passions, right? The ideal person is a person who can keep it all together and rationally and orderly and calmly deal with life. They called that person a Stoic. Uh, and Stoics would never lament. Uh, I'm more Stoic than Hebrew. For those of you that know me, that comes as no shock, no surprise. Uh, but here's the thing. God's process, Holy Spirit's process of sanctifying me is actually making me more Hebrew than Stoic. The, the, the trouble is, uh, being Stoic is what makes me a great Presbyterian. But it makes me a terrible lamenter. I, I stink at lamenting. Uh, Jamie, my wife, was asking me even this morning. She said, you know, what are, what, are, what are areas of your life or where are times where you've found yourself really crying out to the Lord? Uh, and, and most of it is having to do with, with my kids and, and, and wanting good for them and wanting God to, to, uh, to, to save them, to, to redeem them, to sanctify them, make, him, make them more like himself. But in general... I don't tend to cry out for a whole lot or complain to God about a whole lot with the way things are going because, I mean, I'm in control. And, and I calmly, rationally, and ideally deal with the world around me, unless I'm in the car, as some of you heard before. Now, I, I want to try to define lament this way. Simply a way to deal with the gap between reality and hope. How do you live in the space between what you can see, what's currently happening, something that's, that's not going well, an aspect of your life that's causing you to grieve or be upset about things not being the way they should be or supposed to be? How do you deal with the gap between that and what you long for or what you want to see changed? See, the Hebrews, unlike the Greeks, longed for the world to be different. Because they knew reality is not the way things are supposed to be. They, they, did, they, they saw sin and evil and wickedness as abnormal, not normal. And they believed in a God who listened, who saw, who acted. And so they were regularly in his face, reminding him, 
calling on him, even demanding of him. He's all-powerful, right? He can do something. He's loving. He's proven that again and again. He says that about himself. Therefore, he wants to do something, and he keeps his word. He is a God who makes covenants and swears by himself. He has to do something. Those truths were driving their laments. See, a lament connects the promise of God with the problem that I'm facing. And when that connection occurs, um, uh, Paul Miller, who's, who's written a book on prayer and actually study on Ruth, very, very helpful stuff. He says, when the connection between the promise of God and the problem we're facing occurs, like, like positive and negative wires, he says, sparks fly. And it gets messy. And that's why the laments in the Bible seem so brash and even downright blasphemous at times. Now, we've shown this graphic before, but uh, I think Joe has is going to pull it, pull it up or put it up there. Some of you may recognize it. For those of you who, who haven't, I think it's a helpful uh, visual. Uh, what does that gap between the promise and the problem feel like? It feels like a desert, right? It's a dry, uncertain, hard place. And the tendency for all of us when we're in the desert can be, if we're not careful, to simply accept it. We learn to live in it. Uh, something, a phrase that uh, we, we say, uh, confession time, we say it in my house a lot. It is what it is. And unfortunately, it is what it is. Becoming a theme sort of phrase of your life is, oh well, we'll just deal with it. We, we, we learn slowly but surely to deal with and live in and be comfortable with the status quo. And that's the very definition of a stoic. A person who loves, not loves, but, but, but is just comfortable in the status quo. But in the process of that, the problem is you lose any sense of hope. The danger here, being comfortable can lead to becoming cynical. And I could teach a master class on cynicism. Uh, we used to have master classes. I, I thought at one point I was going to maybe minor in music uh, when I got to Florida State uh, until I met all the music majors and minors and realized, yeah, I probably am not good enough to do that. But one of the things that they always did, depending on your instrument or your area of focus, is they had master classes. And I could give you a master class in how to be cynical because it is revealing something about how comfortable I am with the fact that things are the way they are. It is what it is. He's the president. She's the this. Things are like that. Oh, well, I'll just deal with it. The trouble is cynicism tends to drive us toward bitterness. It tends to drive us toward self-pity. It tends to drive us to just a general spirit of complaining and grumpiness. Do you know anybody like that? You can all say you do. You met one today, right? If you didn't, you do now. Here's the, the, Greeks, the Greeks didn't have an answer for suffering like the Jews did, how to handle it. And when I don't see the status quo changing, I shut my heart off. I disengage with reality. And so rather than, I, than using a lament to cope with the desert and the tension I feel, to speak to God and to speak to the community about my fr frustration, I withdraw. Now listen to these words. This is a warning, very sober warning. Bitterness tends to see all of life through the lens of your own personal suffering. 
It is a demand of the heart that God take away the suffering. Its cousin, self-pity, combines suffering with pride. You compare your suffering with others. One of the best ways to deal with bitterness and self-pity is not to try to control them by stuffing them, but to expose your heart to your friends. The exposure of bitterness and self-pity can open the door to grace. However, if bitterness is stuffed, it becomes a spiritual cancer that can destroy your soul. Watch out. And that brings us to Naomi uh, and her words here and brings us to the second point. She expressed her bitterness, her frustration. She, she refuses to stuff it because, of course, she was a Hebrew. And her faith, dim as it might seem, comes through in the process. So let's take a look at her, okay? Let's look at her as she returns to Bethlehem from Moab. This is verse uh, 19. I gave you a little bit of some of the backstory. Uh, with verses 11 to 14 and some of her initial words to her daughters-in-law. And then Orpah kisses her goodbye. Ruth clings to her. And here they arrive back in Bethlehem. Remember, it's been 10 years since Naomi has lived in Bethlehem. A lot can happen in 10 years, right? People change. Their, their, uh, their uh, uh, faces change. Their bodies change. Uh, and especially when they've lived through what she has. And so... The town is abuzz with the news that she's come back. The whole town is stirring, uh, verse 19 in the English Standard Version says. And, and it just, it, it's, it's meaning the town is all excited. They're running to and fro. Naomi's back, Naomi's back, Naomi's back, right? Uh, the people ask, is this pleasant? Is, is that pleasant coming into the city? Uh in the, for the Hebrews and, and in the East, much more so than in the West, names have tremendous meaning and value for people. Uh, and so your, your name meant something, and it meant something significant. And so she heard them saying, is that pleasant? Is that another name for, her, for Naomi is lovely. Is that lovely? Is that pleasant coming back? And she looks at them and says, no, no pleasant here. No pleasant here. I'm bitter. I left full, but the Lord has emptied me. He turned on me, one of his own. He's, he's against me. And you can hear her friends and extended family members, wow, Naomi, uh, tell us how you really feel, right? I mean, be honest. Let it all out, right? Well, she's doing that, right? Of course, the people closest to you often get the worst of you, and chances are what she's saying out loud here has been rumbling around in her heart for some time. At least that's, I'm going to make that argument with you. This doesn't just pop up out of her mouth as she's entering into the city gates. She's been wrestling with God all the way back from Moab. Because of what she says and the way she says it, we can guess she's already been lamenting. So how is this an expression of faith? Well, listen, a lament expects God to act. It's an expression of faith in the God who is there. You're talking to him in the first place, which signifies you have some faith that he's listening, some faith that he exists, that he's there. It engages him passionately with the burdens that's on, uh, that are on your heart. Lamenting connects God's past promises with the present reality I'm facing while hopeful for a better future. Okay, so you get that? It's... It, it's, it's uh, it's looking at God's past promises. It's reflecting on my current, my present reality, and it is remaining hopeful 
for a better future. So if you look in your worship folder at the call to worship, uh, flip back there, and I just want to show you how Jeremiah does all three of these things. Uh, on the front of the worship folder, you'll see the first six verses, right? The first six verses, they recount the present reality. He's saying, it's awful. I am a man who's seen affliction. He has driven me away. The Lord has made me walk in darkness. He's turned his hand against me. He's made my skin and my flesh grow old, broken my bones, besieged me, surrounded me with bitterness, hardship, made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. That sounds terrible. Have you ever been there? Are you there now? You can imagine Naomi thinking those exact same words as she is making the journey from Moab back to Bethlehem. But then, look at verses 21 and 22. Uh, just flip the worship folder open. God's past promises. Notice what Jeremiah has to do. He has to remind himself, because lamenting takes work. Lamenting takes a lot of work. But what beautiful words. This I call to mind, verse 21. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's great love is still with us, and we're not consumed as a result. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, referring to even his past faithfulness. And then finally, verse 24. Here's the future. So his present reality, the past promises of God, the past character of God, how he's proven himself, and then a better future. If I know the Lord has proven himself, I can wait for him to show up. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I'll wait. There's a minor exception in the Bible with Psalm 88. Uh, Psalm 88 doesn't end like Lamentations ends, like the call to worship ends. Uh, it doesn't end in faith, but here's the thing. The very words crying out to the Lord are an acknowledgement he's there because the psalm begins with, O Lord, God of my salvation. The psalmists were passionately engaged with God as the sovereign, as the steadfast loving, as the covenant-keeping Lord of Israel. And so when the realities of this world weighed them down, when their hearts were breaking, they lamented. But when lamenting stops, when reality just is what it is, uh, that's when you've got a problem. I already mentioned this, but I want to mention it again because I need to hear it multiple times. Uh, and my guess is many of us do too. That's the point at which your heart is slowly but surely being given over to cynicism, which is essentially unbelief where you've just accepted things as they are, he or she or it, the situation, isn't going to change. You'll stop grieving, you'll stop lamenting, and you'll just settle. Now, does Naomi's posture toward the Lord make more sense to you a little bit? She, she's unwilling to settle. She's unwilling. Her emotion is raw. I mean, look at the words again. Verse 13, uh, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because the Lord has made my life very bitter. She's actually telling the people to name her, which means identify her as 
bitter because he's brought misfortune. He's afflicted me. And yet, and yet, as her heart is broken, her feet are obeying. Where is she as she's lamenting? Verse 19, the two women went on until they came to where? Bethlehem, the promised land. They arrived in Bethlehem, and all of this begins, and she speaks to the people. While her heart is breaking, her feet are obeying. It's her faith in the goodness and power of God himself that's driving her frustration with him. She knows his character. As a Hebrew, she's defined by his character, the Lord, the Lord. What does he say about himself back in Exodus and throughout the Old Testament? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. She knows that. But her experience doesn't add up in light of that. He's directly responsible for her suffering, and she calls him on it. It hurts. But expressing herself this way, I want you to see, is the very proof of her faith. Now, a caveat, parenthesis, what's the difference between complaining and lamenting? Very important point. Uh, complaining just settles and is, is okay with disobedience. It kind of sulks in the corner. On the other hand, lamenting moves toward hope, and it results in obedience. There's, there's three, three major differences of uh, lamenting as opposed to complaining. A lament is directed to God as opposed to about God or to other people. If you complain about your life only to other people and you never go to God about it, you're not lamenting. You're complaining. It doesn't mean that you won't lament to your friends. It doesn't mean you don't bring your friends into it, but that lament flows out of the time that you have lamenting with God first. Secondly, it submits to God. Even though Naomi is accusing the Lord of abandoning her, she's heading back into Bethlehem, which is in Israel. She's submitting. She's submitting, listen, even though she's struggling. She's submitting even though she's struggling. So, a lament is directed to God, a lament submits to God, and thirdly, a lament ends with faith. Laments are going somewhere. They're on a journey toward the heart of God. They aren't self-centered rambling. They're simple, honest prayers to the God of the universe, but they're fueled by this faith-filled expectation, right? He's done something in the past. He's going to continue to do something in the future. I don't know when. I don't know how, but I know. So if you're not lamenting, you're probably not engaged in the work of loving. There's nothing that's breaking your heart. Loving God means taking him seriously. It means taking his words, his character, his promises seriously. And so you call on him to be true to those things. A friend of mine used to say, when you pray like this, it's laying hold of the horns of the altar and pulling. You might lament over your sin. You might lament over the sin of another. So where is the energy to persevere? Where is the energy to know that God is loving you as you lament, but also as you love others, listening to their laments? Because let's be honest, somebody who is in Naomi's position, somebody whose life is really this bad, are they fun to be around day in and day out, week in and week out? No. I mean, you want to get away from them sometimes, right? So 
Thirdly and, and lastly, where's the proof? Where's the proof of God's love for Naomi? How do we become the, the silent lover like Ruth, like, like Jesus? Does God answer Naomi? Does he give her any indication that he's listening, that he cares about the difficulties of her life? I want you to see God does respond to her lament. How does he respond to her lament? Look at verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, how many people are there heading to Bethlehem? Two. She's not alone. God is responding to her. God is walking beside her. He doesn't judge her for her struggle. He just quietly wraps her in his arms, beginning with Ruth's expression of unconditional love. That's where it's beginning for Naomi. That's where her, her redemption, her recovery, her restoration begins. God is silently loving her in the middle of her lament. Listen, he welcomes the messiness of our hearts. He loves this honest expression of childlike prayer. God, where are you? God, are you going to leave me forever? God, what's going on? See, weary and heavy-laden people, you know, the, the kind Jesus invites to himself, come all, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy-laden. Heavy-laden and weary people are not composed or polished. And you never hear God chastise or correct someone in the Bible for honestly lamenting. You never hear that. In fact, sometimes he gets on to Israel for not lamenting. So when your friend or your spouse is venting with you, do you lecture them or do you listen to them? Uh, love listens. It doesn't lecture. And through Ruth, the Lord silently and yet faithfully is still listening and responding to Naomi. It's as if the writer is suddenly reminding us that Ruth is there, but Naomi is so fixated on her suffering and pain that she forgets God's steadfast love is walking right beside her. But love so often ends up lonely, doesn't it? And here's the good news of the gospel. Because Ruth's greater son, greatest son, Jesus Christ, became more and more lonely as he moved closer and closer to the cross. And on the cross, his father turned his face away from his one and only son, casting him into the loneliness the very loneliness of hell itself, absent from the goodness and grace and mercy of God. And because Jesus went there before us, we can endure. We can even embrace the loneliness that often comes from love because when it comes down to it, we're never alone. We're never alone. In fact, the very act of loving, the very act of moving towards someone who's in pain, who's in a lament, who needs someone to listen to their complaint, draws us into a fellowship. Look as we finish at the assurance of pardon uh, in your worship folder. Again, from John uh, 14. In verse 21, Jesus says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So, you get more of Jesus as your love for him explodes into your love for others. That's his promise. And in verse 23, even better. Love for Jesus, empowered by the Father and Son's love for you, means I have the God of the universe, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
making their home in me. That's what he says. So as I lament myself, as I hear the laments of others, I'm drawn into deeper and deeper fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We will come and make our home with him. Then I can listen and not lecture. And that's where I find the resources to love you, to listen to you, to love you whether you acknowledge it or not, whether anyone notices me or not, whether you love me in return or not. So can you imagine a community like that? A community of people loving each other Ruth-like, Jesus-like. That's a community that can change a city, that can change a county, that can change a world. We're going to sing a song of lament uh, written by Anne Steele, uh, who became an invalid very early in her life due to a hip injury. Her father died when she was five, and the day before, at 21, she was set to be married Uh, The day before her wedding, her husband drowned in a river, her fiancé. So, as you sing these words, think of Anne, but also think of the rawness of what she was crying out and writing down. It was coming out of the depths of her heart. And ask God to give you that same honesty with him. It'll change you. It'll make you run into him uh, more more consistently, uh, and give you more of his glory, more of himself as a result. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we cry out to you and we ask you would settle our hearts where they need to be settled, uh, where we're where we're struggling, but also settle our hearts to rest in not stuffing our emotions, our fears, our honest complaints to you, but to express them where life is hard, where we need you, that we would increasingly be a people who cry out to you and are faithful to hear the the crying out of our friends because we know that we're not alone as we do that. Thank you for the honesty of the Psalms. Thank you for the honesty of Naomi here, what she teaches us. Make us more like her in expressing ourselves to you. In turn, make us more like Jesus, more like Ruth in silently walking beside our friends as they struggle too. Help us to be faithful as you've been faithful to us. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. We wanted to model the sense of lamenting uh, by singing a song of lament. And to be honest, it took me about two days to find one. Uh, Because we don't sing songs like this in church very much. We don't sing songs with this kind of honesty. It's it's nerve-wracking to people. Uh, Just think about, it's it's obvious, uh, the faith that is behind these words. Uh, And cry out and express yourself to the Lord uh, as she sings. Thank you.
supposed to be but we have a God who, who loves us so much his steadfast love is so great for us that he said you're not going through this alone I'm going to come and I'm going to do this with you we're going to do this side by side and so as we as we go out from here into this week um, depending on what you're facing or whatever it is that you're facing we go with this promise this God's word this benediction over us so please receive the Lord's benediction may the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you both now and forevermore. Amen.